for everyone that showed up, everyone that's being mitzaref to consecrate, so to speak, this uh, the opening of this uh, of this Beit Midrash. For those who don't know me, my name is Shamai. I help manage the Beit Knesset and the Beit Midrash here, and we had the privilege of coordinating with uh, with the Rav and the broader Machon to begin a a place of Torah study here in Yerushalayim. That. Uh, Bezrat Hashem, we will all, in the merit of uh, all of us coming here together, will uh, will achieve uh, will achieve tremendous success. Just some very very brief thoughts, not to steal the Rav's uh, show Chas Shalom. Just uh, just some just some thoughts that I think that are that I think are appropriate for the for the moment that we find ourselves in. Dafka now, when most of the members of our kihila are uh, are still occupied with dealing with our enemies as I had the privilege to be occupied in until uh, a, few, uh, a few weeks ago. Dafka now at this time, where the, the Kila is taking on the project of beginning, of beginning a new enterprise in the, in the middle of Yerushalayim. There's something very, very distinct in the air that we're, that we're experiencing now in this time. There's a tremendous amount of chaos and instability and lack of clarity in terms of what the next day will bring, what the next steps are going to be, what they should be. Perhaps we have a little bit more clarity, but what is going to be is less clear. We're now going into the Tkufa of Adar. And the Tkufa of Adar obviously is characterized by the Nisim Viniflot that the Jewish people experienced. Right? Another time in history where we had to deal with the onslaught of Amalek and the miracles that we experienced there. And as everyone knows, anyone who's had uh, even a, uh, a little bit of experience with the Purim songs knows that the central theme of the nes of Purim that we experienced, as Rashi says in the Gemara and Megillah, Mishum Chibat Hanes, because of the tremendous inspiration that the Jewish people experienced from that miracle, that is what triggered this almost organic consecration of the holiday of Purim. And what characterizes this miracle <laughs> what characterizes this miracle is the theme of Ma'apecha, the Na'afochu. This is a theme that's, that's emphasized more than once in the Megillah. That there was this experience of switching around. Things were switched from one, from one state of being to another. What's very interesting about this is that this term Na'afochu in all of Kitvei HaKodesh has a distinct negative connotation. Na'afochu has a distinct negative connotation. From the very first time that we come across this word, all the way in the very, very beginning of the story, that when Adam and Chava are kicked out of their, of their semi-divine state in Gan Eden, that there is a block, there is a block, something, there is a michshol that is placed for them to regain access to this. The two kruvim that are stationed at the place of, right, guarding the path of Eitz HaChayim, right, velat acherev hamitapechet, hamitapechet, there is a, there is a, state of confusion or chaos that is blocking Adam and Rava from getting back to the Eitz HaChayim. Later on in the story of Avraham, we find that when Sodom and Amorah and all the surrounding cities are deemed too wicked to continue, so the destruction that God brings upon this place is called a Ma'apecha. Ke'ma'apecha Sodom ve'amorah That God brought about a Ma'apecha in His wrath. This is a very distinct, distinctly negative theme. And yet, for some reason, when it comes to Purim, when it comes to Purim, this is the central theme of the positivity of the nace that occurred to the Jewish people. So, 
while typically ma'apicha is in fact something not so positive, something that we want to avoid, ma'apicha is also the possibility of new openings that didn't exist before. It's new openings that didn't exist. We find in, in the Navi and Yonah, at the very, very end of Yonah, the prophet, he wanted to run away from his mission. He, didn't, he was avoiding what God had sent him to do. And finally, after a little convincing, he needed a little convincing. After a little bit of convincing, he arrives in Ninveh to deliver his message. And his message is one line. That's it. His message is one line. What's his one line? Od arba'im yom ne'pachet. In 40 days, Ninveh will be upturned. So the question is, did the prophecy of Yonah come true? Or did it not come true? We all know the story. We all know what happened. Right? There's this incredible response to this one line that Yonah speaks. Right? The Navi Shayao has, 60, right, has 66 chapters of rebuking the Jewish people. He didn't respond to any of them. This one line of the prophet Yonah, it causes this incredible response in Ninveh. The king he makes an announcement. Everyone's got a fast. Even the, even the animals are wearing sackcloth and ashes. There's tremendous tshuva that goes on in the city. It's a, right, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a model for collective tshuva, what happens in Ninveh. So did the prophecy of Yonah come true, or did it not come true? The answer is that it absolutely came true. The prophecy of Yonah came true. He said definitively, 40 days, there will be a ma'apecha in this city. Either it will be it will be like the upheaval of Sodom and Gomorrah in which God brought an upheaval of destruction or there will be a different upheaval, a ma'apicha, a revolution. There will be a revolution here. You choose what ma'apicha you want. You want the ma'apicha of Sodom and Gomorrah you want the ma'apicha of Tshuva. But there will be a ma'apicha. There will be. And it is this wave that we are riding right now. We are riding a wave of ma'apecha. Things that are absolutely unprecedented in our history. This is, everyone knows this. Everyone who has a smidgen of sensitivity understands that we are on a milestone in Jewish history. We had Yitziat Mitzrayim, Kinisal Aretz, Binyan Beit HaMikdash, and we had the massacre of Simchat Torah. This is, this is a milestone in Jewish history. That we are literally in the midst of determining what the nature of this milestone will be. It's determining what will be. And we, we, we feel the ma'apecha, we feel the tohu, we feel the, we feel the lack of stability in the air. But that lack of stability is opening up. It's opening up possibilities that did not exist. Right? When I was with the Yechida in the north part of the Strip, north part of Gaza, I should be more specific, people are confiding how these events are opening up vistas into themselves, into the world, into how they relate to their communities, things that they can never, thoughts and perspectives that they could have never even imagined. And I'm sure everyone has had similar experiences, at least speaking to people that have had, that have had these, 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 uh, these possibilities opened. And I feel that it is Dafka now the most appropriate to begin, to begin something, even, right, specifically in this state of lack of stability. It's, a, right, it's appropriate to start something now. So now to be open to receiving Torah, to study Torah, right, to be Kovea Makom Torah Eretz Yisrael, and to bring about the, right, the authentic Ruach of Torah that we know is so vital to give us direction in this particular time. So Bezrat Hashem, I'll hand over uh, the mic to Rav Bar Chaim. And he, he can... Please, Rav. Shalom Aleichem. I hope you had less difficulty finding this wonderful place than I did. <laughs> but 
the first time is always the most difficult. Uh, there are sheets, I hope, enough. The Talmud, the Masechet Bava Bathra, in the Bavli, states that Miswath Pidyon Shivuyim is a Miswa Rabbah. There, the Talmud relates that uh, a certain queen, who a, a non-Jewish queen, but a very righteous woman, had a sum of money, and she wanted to give it to Rav Yosef, a great chacham that she knew in Bavel. And uh, Ofra Hormiz was her name, and she said to him, "I'm giving you this money, a large sum of money." to do with it a miswa rabba, a great miswa, and it's up to you what you do with it. So Rav Yosef began to uh, ask himself and ask others as well. He took advice from Abaye and asked him, what's a miswa rabba? The maskana of the Talmud is that Pidyon Shuvuyim is a miswa rabba, a very special and uh, outstanding, unique miswa. And Rambam, of course, as usual, Kedarko, quotes this expression from the Talmud. It's not in front of you in the source sheet, but I'll read it to you. Uh, he uses exactly that terminology. In Hilchot Matnoth Aniyim, Perek Shmini Alechayod, Rambam says, Pidyon Shivuyim, Kodem Lefarnasath Aniyim, Ulichsutham. If the community has a certain sum of money for charitable purposes and the like and now it happens to be the case that there are we are aware now of certain Jews who were taken captive and uh, a ransom is being demand for, demanded for them whatever funds we have should go towards that first rather than feeding and clothing the poor which is of course usually also a great miswa but this comes first and Rambam goes on to say, So you see, again, as usual, Rambam takes the precise Lashon of Hazal and he uses the term Miswa Rabba. Why? A person who is held in captivity is very likely not being fed properly. Therefore, he's probably hungry, thirsty, perhaps he's, they took his clothes away, perhaps he's naked. And his life is in danger. One never knows what could happen to him at any moment. And he who chooses to ignore this reality, this fact, that this Jew needs to be redeemed, you shall not harden your heart and close your fist, but rather you have to give whatever you have in order to help this fellow Jew. And you are also transgressing the Isur, a fellow Jew. A Re'ah is always a fellow Jew. The word technically means a colleague. And also, and they shall not deal with your fellow Jew harshly, and you, you witness it and do nothing about it. 
etc. The Rambam continues, also, You would wish that they do the same for you. So this is clearly an outstanding miswa. And yet, not at any price. That is the halakha, as we're about to see now. There are various considerations and circumstances where, despite our true and sincere desire to redeem, to save, to repatriate any, any Jew who is in such a terrible situation, it is not true that this overrides every, every other consideration. That is not true. We learn this, and this you have in the source sheet before you, we learn this in the, from the Mishnah, Masechet Gitin, Perek Rivi'i, Alakha Wow. En podim et hashivuim yather al demehem. Mipne tikun ha'olam. One does not redeem Jewish captives, yather al demehem, more than their worth, more than the market rate. Mipne tikun ha'olam, because of Takanab the Chachamim, in order to negotiate successfully and, and deal with re- various realities, including very difficult and harsh and cruel realities, in order to do so correctly, the Chachamim made a Takana. And that is that you do not overpay for Shivuim. Now, what does that mean, overpay? Who sets the price? As with everything, the market sets the price. We're not talking about Amalekim, uh, such as Hamas, etc. We're talking about the world 2,000 years ago, shall we say, when these, this halakha was roughly around that time was formulated, perhaps a little bit later, perhaps even a bit before, we don't know exactly. At that time, in many parts of the world, this was a phenomenon throughout the world, but certainly in, in this part of the world, in the Mediterranean, um, in, 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 this, in, in the Middle East, the reality of particularly pirates who, who cruised around the Mediterranean and would pounce on ships and kidnap people and find out where they're from and then go and demand ransom for these people. This was uh, a thriving business. It was an industry. It wasn't uh, nothing to do with warfare. These people weren't your enemies uh, as such, they were just making a living, as the Mafia always likes to tell its victims before they, they put them out of their misery. It's nothing personal, it's just business. Right? So this is how we make, this is how, how we make a living. This is our parnosa. You can't, prov- you can't complain if someone wants to make a parnosa. This is their living. And therefore there was a market. There was a whole market for, for shavuim, for captives who were up for ransom. And it was known that a person, let's say, a man in his 30s would be a very good slave, shall we say, and uh, he could be used for various purposes. He would fetch a certain price in that market. And, and a woman, perhaps, say, of, let's say, of childbearing years might be worth more than a woman who's older because she can no, no longer have children or something like that. Every person, child, man, woman, had a, had a value, had a price. So this halakha, this Mishnah states that if a Jewish community becomes aware in its area, in its vicinity, there are these um, kidnappers, pirates, what have you, and they come along and they say, we, have, uh, we understand your Jews, right? We have a Jew. 
that we kidnapped on the high seas. His name is, you know, whatever, Chaim Shmerl, and uh, we want such and such for him. If the price they are demanding for him is the going rate, and we have the means to pay it, then we must do it. But if, if the, let's say the going rate is 100 pieces of silver, and they're demanding 300 pieces of silver, then we say to them, no deal, no dice. Yes, he's our brother, and we want to redeem him, and we, our heart goes out to him, but we're not going to pay more than the going rate. Why not? What about all these things that Ramdam just told us? etc etc all these all these pesukim all these miswath what what happened to that the answer is mipane tikun ha'olam the Talmud will explain in a moment what that means there's a, there's a very good reason why we cannot allow ourselves to for them to dictate to us such terms it also goes on to say in the same Mishnah, which we will mention here in passing. For similar reasons, if a group of Jews were taken captive and they're being held somewhere as hostages for ransom, we do not try and break them out. We do not try and um, conduct some uh, military or semi-paramilitary operation to, to release them. Why not? Because, again, this will in future cause greater problems. We will discuss this in a, in a moment. Not because tikkun ha'olam, but because of the takana of the shuvuim. The difference we'll explain if we have time a little bit later. But first we'll deal with the first part of the Mishnah. We do not pay more than the going rate. The Tamud there in Gitin, Number two on the source sheet states as follows. The following question was asked in the Bet Midrash. Is this is the reason that the Chachamim made this takana, Mishum Sibura, which means not to place too great a financial burden on the community, because who's paying for this after all? All the Jews, everyone's paying. All the Jewish community. Everyone, let's say there's a, it's decided we're going to redeem this Jew. They want 300, uh, let's say the going price, price is to 100. And they're asking 300. Oh, we'll pay 300. So everyone now has to chip in. So they say every household has to pay 10 pieces of silver, whatever it might be. But if we, if we go along with whatever price they choose to demand, then we'll turn the Jewish community into a bunch of paupers. They'll have they'll have nothing to, to survive on themselves. They'll turn themselves into a kind of shavui, into a kind of uh, misken. And that's that's unreasonable. That's not that's not tenable. So is it because of Duchkad the Sibura? In other words, we're looking out for the Jewish community in its entirety. And as Rashi explains at the bottom of the page, because of these shivuyim, these captives, we are not going to turn the entire Jewish community, all the Jews in this area, into people who, have, who cannot feed their children and not uh, buy shoes for their children and not send them to school. We're not going to do that. In other words, there's a limit to what you can demand of, of other Jews in order to save this Jew. 
So that's one possibility. The Chachamim made this Takana in order that the Jews not be extorted for higher and higher sums of money, which eventually will leave them broke. And that's, that's irrational. That doesn't, uh, you can't conduct yourself in such a fashion. Or Dilma, the other possibility that Talmud states, the second line, Mishum Dala Nigravu The Girsa of the Aruch is Dala Nigravu which means, lest we encourage them to take more captives, more Jewish captives. In other words, if they see that normal people, that is, you know, some other nations, Goyim, Romans, Greeks, uh, whoever it may be in this part of the world, in the Mediterranean, if you tell them we have a Roman captive, uh, they'll, they'll pay the going price, but they won't pay anything beyond the going price. But these Jews, because they have this special connection between themselves, they have this arvuth that they, between them, they consider themselves responsible one for the other, whatever you ask of them, they'll pay. What, what would the result of that be? It's obviously much, a much better business model to, cap, to capture Jews and not non-Jews, because the Jews will pay whatever you ask. And only a fool would, would act, uh, would go along with such things, with such a, would acquiesce to such an arrangement. So the Talmud asks, what was the reason for this Takana? Was it in order to uh, not cause the Jewish community to itself become impecunious? without funds, without money, because they'll be bled dry by these people, or in order not to encourage these, these evil, nasty people, and no one's denying that they're evil and cruel and, and nasty, and they're all hayavim mitha, because they're, they're stealing. To steal even a small amount of money is, an, is a surf any ben noach. To steal a nefesh, gonev nefashoth, is even much more, is much more serious. So all these people are hayavim mitha, but Apparently you can't do that right now. You're not in a position to do that. So what can you do? You can pay. But there's a limit to how much you pay. So is, it, is this limit because of causing the Jewish community to become impecunious and the Jews, all, the, all the Jews will become uh, paupers? Or is it in order not to encourage these people to go after more Jews? Because then you'll just have more, more Jews to, you'll have to redeem. And you'll just... Uh, guarantee a vicious cycle. The Talmud states, Tashema. We have the following example. Delewi Bar Darga, that was his name. Pirka Livrate or Levarte. The Temanim read it Livrate. Bithlesar Alfe Dinarezahav. He his daughter was taken captive, and he redeemed her with thirteen thousand uh, pieces of din, golden dinarim. Huge, a huge sum. So, what, what might you learn from that? The Talmud is suggesting, if he behaved in such a way, apparently it's okay. If you have the money, then you can go ahead and do that. So, you're not, you're not placing the burden on the community. You yourself are very wealthy, and you're willing to pay such a ransom. And you say to the community, don't, I don't need your help, thank you very much, I'll, I'll take care of it. And if that's if we can learn such uh, such a, a uh, if we can ma make this assumption based on what he did that he paid this huge amount then we can conclude that that uh, 
if it's not falling on the on the community as a whole, this burden is not being placed upon the community, then then it's okay. So that would strengthen the argument that we're talking about Dukkadasiburai was because of not encumbering, not placing too great a burden on the community. Because if the individual do it rather than the community, he can go ahead and do so. But the Talmud says that's not no proof at all. Who's to say that he did so uh, in accordance with the opinion and the instructions and the, and the uh, acquiescence of the Chachamim? Perhaps he went off and did it off his own bat because he, he figured, I have the money, it's my daughter, and I'll do it. Whatever I want to do, I'll do. And therefore, there's no proof in that case from what he did. Because perhaps he had he asked the Chachamim, they would have said to him, no, you can't do this. Why not? Because, yes, you may be saving your daughter, and we understand why you want to pr- save your daughter from these people, but you are responsible for other Jews as well. What you do may have a very, very far-reaching and, and deleterious effect on all other Jews in this area and other areas. If the word gets out that Jews will pay astronomical sums for captives, then you yourself are... are causing these future incidents to occur. And that's something you, can't, you cannot do, even if it is your daughter. And this the Talmud refers to as Shiloh birson hachamim. Take note. What does the Talmud say? It says, how, what does the Baye say? Man hachamim avad. Who's to say that he did this birson hachamim according to the understanding and the, uh, the advice of the hachamim? Or perhaps he acted against their advice. In other words, a person who goes ahead and does such a thing, thinking only of himself or his daughter, his family, his personal interest, doesn't think about the klal, about Am Yisrael as a whole, about klal Yisrael as a whole, that person is acting in a very, very, uh, even a criminal manner because he is causing tremendous damage to, to Am Yisrael as a whole. Rashi explains, if you look at the bottom of the page, Rashi explains, the other side of the argument was, perhaps it's because of the, the consideration is not to encourage these people to capture more, more other Jews, more cap- Jewish captives, who will, because they see that they'll, any amount will be paid. Rashi says, because they see that they're able to sell these captives off to ransom them at a huge price. When Afkamina and Rashi explains, when what's the difference between these two possibilities? Why does a Talmud ask? Is it for this reason or is it for that reason? Rashi explains, Nafkamina av Ashir or If this particular captive Jew has a very wealthy father or a wealthy relative who is willing to put out whatever it takes to, to redeem him and not, will not ask that, that Sibur, the community, participate then if you say it's because of if it's because of the Jewish community and how much they will be uh, forced to pay up if someone is offering to do that by themselves, then that's not a consideration any longer. But if it's so as not to encourage the goyim to specifically focus on Jews, because they will always pay whatever you demand, then, uh, then it doesn't matter how rich the father might be. 
because that's not the, we're not talking about this particular person only, we're talking about all future Jewish captives. And Rambam sums up this, this, this halacha of the Mishnah in Yitchoth Matnothani in Perek Shmini Halacha Yod Beth and he says En podim et ha-shivuyim ve-yafer al-damehem Jewish captives are not to be redeemed at above the going rate Mipnei tikun ha-olam Why? Shelo yu ha-oyevim lo-dhafim ahrehem lishbotam So as not to give more incentive to the to the evildoers. Rambam uses the term oyevim, but we're not talking about a war situation as we discussed. He's talking about evil people who will do whatever whatever takes their fancy in order to 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 make make a dollar. So that these people will not uh, go after Jews even with with greater uh, enthusiasm and with and with greater efficiency. Now I'm sure you all know and understand why I chose this, to mention this Mishnah, this, this Halakha today. I heard a family member of one of the uh, captors, one of the Hatufim in Azza, interviewed the other day, and I, this person said, I think it's, he was, he's the father of a young man who was, who was taken captive, and, and of course our heart goes out to him to all of them. But he said something very terrible and we have to recognize and we have to state clearly that what he said is unacceptable and in fact criminal. He said, I don't care what it takes, I don't care what happens afterwards, I don't care if you release every last terrorist in, in, in our jails, I want my son back. And that's exactly the wrong answer. That's a, precisely something that we cannot tolerate because this undermines the Jewish people. Even in, th in this type of situation that the Mishnah is referring to, which is not a situation of warfare, fighting an enemy that is, uh, wishes to exterminate us, etc. Even not in that situation. How much more so, Kalwa Homer, in our present situation? Because the truth is that this entire Mishnah, in our situation, is not even relevant. Because if it were the case, as I heard some other people also who, who wish to uh, release hostages at any, at any cost, at any price, say, I also in some interview that I heard, they, they claim, it's interesting, these people tend to be uh, secular and left-wing, they all of a sudden become very expert in, in halakha and mishnah and rambam, it's, it's very interesting. And all of a sudden they start telling us, you always told us that piyon shvoim is such a great mitzvah, so why aren't you doing it now? The answer of course is that, first of all, they, they, they don't know what it says, and they don't really care what it says, but we know and we care. And we also know that this situation is, is, is child's play compared to the situation we're dealing with. Because if it were the case that every time a Jewish Jew is captive, and it might be a soldier, it might be a civilian, doesn't really matter, and we are, we are required to do anything at all and pay any price and agree to any demand in order to redeem that person, 
If that's the case, that means the Jewish people can never fight their enemy. If all it takes is one, one soldier, one civilian to be taken captive, and they, and they uh, can make the demand. Well, we demand that you stop fighting and withdraw from Aza, etc., because uh, we know that you have to redeem all, all your captives, and we have a captive. Here he is. So, end of the war, right? Wrong. Absolutely not. Think for a moment what would have happened in the, in the Second World War when, shall we say, the United States was, was fighting Japan. And uh, this is not a hypothetical, this is a reality, this is what happened. Many, many thousands of American soldiers were taken captive and were, were being kept in, in terrible conditions. What would have ha such a demand was never made, but what would have happened had the Japanese said to the Americans, well, we have 5,000 of your soldiers and we're making sure to turn, make their lives a living hell and we demand that you stop the war and, and withdraw and retreat and go back to uh, where you came from and then we'll release them. What do you say? What would the Americans have said? They would have said, absolutely not. No way. They just would have hit them even harder. And that's exactly what they did. And, and the same is true in any war-type situation. You cannot possibly limit your actions and your strategy and your willing, willingness to prosecute a war against your enemy because they have some, some of your people in, in, in their possession. It's not possible. In the same way that we cannot, as the Gilanim write in the Teshuvah, when they're asked, how do we know that it's mutar to, to uh, prosecute a war on Shabbat? So one, the, the Tamil discusses this a little bit as well, but the, the Geonim make a very simple point. They say, imagine in the time of Dawid HaMelech, if it would have been, had, been, had it been known to all the enemies of the Jewish people at that time that all you have to do is wait for Shabbat and attack on Shabbat, well then, and you've won because they can't fight on Shabbat. They have to uh, wait till Moshe Shabbat, till, maybe till Zman Rabban Utam, and then they'll start fighting you. <laughs> and in that case, you've won already because they, they couldn't do anything for 12 hours. Obviously, that's not possible. In the same way, it's not possible to agree to such demands. Now, if we think more, more deeply about this Mishnah, this Halakha, not paying more than the going rate, even in that type of situation, which is not a situation of warfare, it wasn't Amalekim, these were just regular, you know, common garden-type pirates and kidnappers. Even in that situation, Chazal say, you cannot overpay tikun ha'olam. What does that mean, tikun ha'olam? You're thinking about other Jews in the future. What will happen if we acquiesce to these demands today? What will we have to, you have to look ahead. You have to look into the future. What will be tomorrow, next month, next year, ten years from now? When Netanyahu criminally agreed to release Gilad Shalit. Was that uh, 11 years ago or something like that? I think... 13 years ago. 13 years ago? And... Well, I think it was 1027 or something like that uh, terrorists were released, including Yihya Sinwar and all, all the rest of the Hevra Kadisha, all the Rashe Ugdolea Hamas. They were all released in that, in that, in that deal. 
It was obvious and plain to any person, even a child, that this would result both for psychological reasons and for practical reasons. In other words, these people would return to their ways with greater vigor, with greater zeal. And they would bring up and educate a whole new generation of such people. And all this was entirely obvious and, and uh, goes without saying. And that's exactly what happened. Before this war broke out, something like 100, 200, I don't remember the number any, any longer, but it's all documented somewhere. You can find it on the internet. Many, many, many Jews, let's just say. I think it was at least 200. Jews were killed by people released in that, in, in that deal. Or people who were sent by people released in that deal, or something like that. So we, we see with our own eyes the, the results of such populist and, and, and vacuous uh, thinking, or lack of thinking, on the part of someone like Netanyahu at that time, which he, at that time he did it clearly for purely populist reasons, in other words just to gain popularity, because all the left-wingers in Tel Aviv were busy plastering the Ayalon with, uh, with, with huge advertisements about releasing Shalit, and he, he wanted to get them off his back. And that's, and, that's, and that's what he agreed to do. And I also said it, but many, many people at that time said, this will be a disaster. This will lead to uh, in 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 non-computable numbers of casualties. And not just casualties, it's, it's, a, it's a message. It's a psychological uh, a question of psychology. You are teaching these people that you can be extorted. You, you are weak. You cannot stand up to pressure. And, and they can beat you. So what, what is the underlying principle of this Mishnah? Even though we have the money to pay for this particular captive, we won't do it, what they're asking, what they're demanding, we won't do. So as not to cause future damage to the Jewish people as a whole. Why do we think in those terms? Why is that individual now who's before us, who's in captivity, who's hungry and thirsty, as Rambam said, they're revim and smeim, and their lives are in danger. Why do we not think about that person right now and put everything else aside? What will be, will be. No. Because the Jewish people is like a living organism. Every human being is an organism, and every human being is made up of, I don't remember the figure right now, is it billions or trillions of cells? I think it's trillions. It's obvious to the organism that if a particular cell is, is diseased, let's say it's cancerous, and it could spread, it could cause a much worse disease, it eventually could kill the entire organism. The body has its own way of dealing with such things, and as long as the person is reasonably healthy, the body deals with these, with these things successfully. It has killer cells, which it sends to kill those sick cells, those cancerous cells, or those degenerate cells, so that it will not cause further harm to the entire organism. Because the cell is not, has no real value or importance when compared to the entire organism. The same is true of the Jewish people. The Jewish people is one organism. Cloudy soil is one living organism. Cloudy soil is also not just the living organism of the Jewish people 
the historical entity of the Jewish people in this particular generation. Klal Yisrael is all of the generations of all of Am Yisrael for all time, from Avram Avinu until the end of time. That is Klal Yisrael. And Mipnei Tikkun HaOlam means that we take into account all of Klal Yisrael today, tomorrow, next generation, and five generations and ten generations down the, down the, the, the road. And if a terrible decision has to be made not to pay uh, an outrageous amount of ransom beyond the normal rate, in order to maintain that policy of looking out for, for Klad Yisrael for all time in all situations, now and in the future, then that terrible, tragic decision has to be made. Just as if a doctor says to a person, look, you've been injured in such and such a way, or you're ill, your, your leg is diseased, we can either amputate this leg and save you, or you will die, it will kill you. We all know what the correct answer is. It's a terrible thing to have to say for that person to say to the doctor, okay, go ahead, do it. If that's the situation, I want you to amputate. No one would wish to be in that situation, but that is the correct response if you are in that situation, because the leg is less important than the person. The cell is less important than the, than the organism, than the body. And the individual is always less important, vastly less important, than Claudius Yisrael as a whole. And that is why we are able to send soldiers into battle. For that reason, and only for that reason. How can you say to a young man, a 19-year-old man, a 39-year-old man, maybe with a family, how can you say to him, you were trained to be a soldier, now we're at war, come over here, here's the Tzav Shmone, get yourself into, into uniform, grab your gear, and we're going, to, we're going to war. And we all know this, not everyone's going to come back in one piece, or at all. How can you say that to anyone? The normal biological response, or line of thinking, is that the organism, individual organism, looks after itself. Every person wants to protect their own life, their own well-being, or perhaps their family's well-being. But here you're telling the soldier, don't go, you're not fighting for yourself, you're not fighting for your family, for them as well, and for yourself as well, but you're fighting for the entire Jewish people. How can you say that to such a person? If the ultimate value in our eyes is the individual human life, you cannot. All warfare is, warfare is based on this principle. And that's exactly why the United States has not won a single war since Korea. In fact, even Korea was a stalemate <laughs> since the Second World War. Because as of the 1960s, in other words, from Vietnam onwards, there was a cultural revolution in the United States. And the individual became the focus of everything. In the Second World War, the U.S. was attacked by Japan, and then Germany declared war on, on, on uh, the U.S. as well. So the United States officially went, declared war on both of, the, both of those countries and went to war. People were lining up, queuing up, to join the army. You can find true stories about people, about men, who were rejected for medical reasons and were not accepted by the army, who committed suicide. Because they couldn't bear the shame that they were not going to fight. People wanted to fight because they 
considered the fact that they belonged to a nation, to a country that was under attack. It was also a question of their national honor and their personal honor, perhaps, and their safety and, and all of these things together. Their, their ident identification with a nation and with a, with a certain cause was above the, the instinctive biological reaction of looking out for oneself. And as long as that was the case, the United States could win a war. In Korea, things had not really changed that much yet in the 50s. But they weren't really willing to prosecute the war all the way, so they fought the Chinese and the, and the Koreans to a standstill. They drew a line to the 38th parallel and they said, all right, so you'll have North Korea and South Korea and we'll leave it at that. But the next decade, when they began to fight in Vietnam, 60s, early 70s, Le Mignanum, that didn't work any longer because there were too many Americans who said, why should, why should I go and fight in the jungles of Vietnam? I, well, I, I'm concerned about myself more than I am about uh, America's foreign policy or, or this or that consideration. I don't want to do it. And that's why they lost the war. And the same, the same can be said about Afghanistan and about Iraq and you name it. The US is now a serial loser of wars. Biggest military in the world. Uh, the defense budget of the United States is, is larger than the next 13 countries after it, put together. But they can't win a war. Why not? All the missiles and planes and ships and submarines, you name it, everything. Can't win a war. Because there is no national will. There is no clarity of vision. There is no purpose. There is no, there is no conception of national purpose and direction. When that is the case, then there's, there's, no, there's no will, no national will. And without national will, you cannot win a war. And that is why I heard about a certain, this is why a certain soldier that I heard about, who was uh, in Azza for, for, a long, for a long time, for months, when he came home, one of, one of his chufshot, uh, one of his uh, brief respites at home, his, his mother asked him, what's the first thing you're going to do when you come home? So the first thing I'm going to do when I come home is I'm going to place a picture of the Ben Mikdash on the wall in our living room. And she said, why? She said, because in every single house in Azar that I entered, there was a picture of Al-Aqsa, or actually the Golden Dome, as they call it, which is Makam Mikdash, on the wall. If they have that national purpose, that they have this idea of why they're fighting, that gives them strength, tremendous strength. And we are lacking. We, do, we lack that sense of purpose and that clear direction. So the Jewish people is an organism, a multi-generational historical entity that covers, spans thousands of years in time, past, present and future. And the individual is always less important than the cloud. And that's why we can send a soldier into battle. Otherwise, we have no moral right to do that. And that's why the soldier will agree to go into battle. And, then we, and we all know, many of us at least have heard, and Rav Shammai possibly can uh, attest to this fact, the tremendous, tremendously high morale of, of the soldiers who've been fighting for months now. And not just religious soldiers, one, one has to state. 
And that I find, frankly, somewhat surprising. I'm less surprised if I hear about a, a Bahur Yeshiva who, who studied in this Yeshiva or this Mechinak Tam and he keeps Shabbat and he learns some Torah and he knows roughly what's going on and why he's there, that he's motivated and he's willing to risk his life. If you tell me the same about some, uh, some individual who, who's never seen a Shabbat meal and, and knows nothing about the Bet Mikdash, and thinks that people who talk about such things are primitive and weird and to be pitied, and you tell me that he still has motivation to, to fight and to risk his life, frankly, I'm surprised. Happily and positively surprised, but I'm still surprised. How is it? Why is that? There's something interesting in the Jewish DNA as a nation. We have a, 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 a national DNA, and somehow some of that some still seems to be functioning and working within the individual Jews, even those who are very distant from Torah and Judaism. Because without that, you can't, under, you can't explain why so many irreligious soldiers who have never kept a single miswa in their lives are, are asking, begging for a pair of tzitzit to wear. This is a fact. You saw this? You can attest to this? Many people have talked, spoken about this. There, there are amutot gathering money, buying tzitzit and sending it to the front, and all kinds of soldiers are wearing tzitzit. The kind of thing that Shimon here is wearing, you know, something they put on the top or underneath, wherever it is. They want to wear tzitzit. This guy's never seen tzitzit in his life. He, doesn't, he never heard the word till yesterday. Now he wants to wear tzitzit. Where did that come from? I honestly don't know. In the case of a, a soldier who's always worn tzitzit, or he knows that he's supposed to wear tzitzit, I, I get it. But when it comes to a, a soldier from, uh, I don't know, from Ramat Sharon or from, you know, Kibbutz, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, En Gedi, whatever it is, where they raise, uh, where they raise pigs, perhaps, why would he want to wear tzitzit? Something has been ignited inside many of, of, of the Jews in this country and around the world, I think, as well. I've heard about Jews in the United States who never identified as Jews, who all of a sudden woke up the day after Shemini Asereth and uh, discovered they were Jewish. It's also strange, but there you have it. Something was ignited in many Jews. Not all, I know, there are all kinds of people out there, and many of them truly evil, and nothing has changed for them. I understand that as well, and we shouldn't fool ourselves about that. There are such people, and there will always be such people. And that's why every day we have the bracha in the Shmonestre, la meshumadim al tehithikwa, vachol aminim karecha yovedu, vachol yavea mehrai karethu, etc., etc. That doesn't change. Those are realities as well. But many people who never gave, a, gave any of these things a second thought, all of a sudden are thinking more in terms of Jewish identity. And tzitzit is the ultimate Jewish identity. You know why? Because even the Pope wears a kippah. <laughs> but a tzitzit, the Pope doesn't wear tzitzit. You have to be Jewish. You have to be Jewish, and it's clearly a Jewish thing. If you're wearing tzitzit, you're Jewish. And that's the most obvious outward uh, expression of your Jewishness, perhaps except for tefillin, which we won't go into right now. So as Rav Shammai was saying earlier, there's no question that this war, which is ongoing, let us not forget, it's not over by any means, is a, a watershed event. And Bezat Hashem, we will be able, if we act wisely, and energetically, 
and we focus on, on the right kind of messaging and the right kind of teaching, we will be able to leverage the, this event to raise Jewish awareness, Jewish identity, and uh, to walk away from this situation, from this, this war which was forced upon us, it shouldn't be forced upon us. It's forced upon us because we chose not to do anything. We should not be always on the defensive. Our enemies should be on the defensive. We should be, we should be, uh, we should be in, on the offensive, and our enemies should always be on the run, in, in fear of their lives. This is the, uh, this is the formula that, uh, in a phone conversation with Benjamin, I came up with. Teshuvah plus milhama plus. Gerush plus Hityashvut equals Nitzachon. Shalom and Nitzachon. Like we saw in the Mishnah, there's Takanat Shavin, right? There's a, so there's a certain case where even breaking the mouth will cause future or other uh, um, prisoners to be damaged. Would it not make sense, as painful as it is, to decide to completely destroy the price of hostages? We're not going to even send soldiers to risk their lives to take them out. We're going to bomb the enemy, like Russia used to do. And even if it means killing the hostages, and then they'll never take hostages again. You lose a certain amount of people once. It's very painful, it's very traumatic, but it'll never happen again because there'll be no price for it at all. I understand what you're saying. And you're preaching to the converted as, 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 as horrendous a choice and decision that would, that would be to have to make. To make. But you are correct. I think you are correct. The, the current leadership obviously is not there and will not do that. And uh, a majority of the nation would not understand such a thing. And that also perhaps is a reason not to do so. But from the very first day of the war, I said, and I repeat, and this is obvious to anybody, should be obvious to anybody, we have to fight and prosecute the war as if there are no hostages. Uh, hostages right now are not something we discuss. We want to hopefully release all of them if we can. But that's not the aim of the war. The aim of the war is to defeat the enemy and destroy the enemy. That is the only aim that the, the government should have defined for, for the military. I'm not going to go here into a, a whole uh, tirade about... about uh, what's wrong with the army and what's wrong with, with the uh, political echelon, etc., etc. Much, a great deal is wrong with all of these institutions and all of these individuals. On the very first day of the war, or the second day, the day after Shemini Asereth, two senior officers should have been fired. The head of, of military intelligence, Aaron Haliwa, who was much too busy with his uh, girlfriend in the hotel in Eilat to, be to bother with the phone calls he received at night before the attack. And, and uh, the head of Southern Command, Finkelman. Both, all, both of these people knew that something was about to happen. Others also knew, but th those certainly those two knew for a fact. We know this today. 
And they said, uh, don't worry about it, it'll be, it'll be fine. Those people should have been got rid of the first day. There are many others also have to go, but that, that should have been the first response. The fact that we have a prime minister who doesn't do such things, that's part of the problem as well. But again, I'm not going to go, into all, go down that road now. That's a long and almost endless discussion. Yes? The, the inverse of what the Rav is discussing, I think the Rav alluded to this, that the dynamic of the, that the Mishnah is discussing, of the Yon is very, very different in its nature than, than the dynamic that we're dealing with today. We're dealing with a situation where it was essentially kidnapped for profit. This was a business model. This is very, very different than the dynamic that we're dealing with today. We're dealing with an enemy that's using hostages as a tactic of war. That's Correct. Right. It's Absolutely. It's a, very, it's it's a, a totally different, different a totally different situation. So, the so point of them of this Mishnah is to teach us that even in that situation, that you do not agree so to think, any demand. Right. So I think that the inverse question is, I think the question that is the question of the hour, is the taking of captives would it be a cautious bele from a halachic perspective? I'm just thinking, as the Rav was speaking, I'm thinking of this of the story that's brought in Sefer Bamidbar as the Jewish people are approaching. Israel, and the Melech Arad comes, attacks them, surprise attack. And Chazal say that is alluding to that there was only one captive. There was only one captive, and on the basis of that one captive, the whole Jewish people went out to war. We have other such stories with David Melech and the end of Sefer Shmuel, etc. I think, I think that when, when captives are being used as a tool by our enemies, so on the contrary, not only do we not negotiate for their for their return, but it's a reason to go out and fight in a, in a very... Uh you're, you're absolutely correct, no, no question. I want to quote something to you that was sent to me by Jonathan Pollard. Let's see if I can find it quickly. I think it was sent to me by, to him, to me, by him. I have to find it if it's here. And if not, I'll, I'll give you the, the gist of it, as I recall. No, I'm sorry. It wasn't sent to my, by Jonathan. It was sent by someone else. I remember now by who it was. Rook. Yes. This was sent to me by Tamid uh, Chachamim. Talmud of mine by the name of Yedidya Brook. This is an article written, appeared in the Los Angeles Times, the 16th of January, 1986. The headline is written by Benjamin Zicher, Z-Y-C-H-E-R. Sounds Jewish. Um, again, the 16th of January, 1986 appeared in the Los Angeles Times. The, the title is KGB Brutality, in inverted commas, saves lives. Our humanity would lose. And he relates the following. This was the early days of Hezbollah. Hezbollah in the 1980s. Um, Hezbollah took uh, three kidnapped, they kidnapped three Soviet diplomats, he writes here, in Beirut. The KG, uh, so they were three Russian diplomats were, were captured, kidnapped by Hezbollah in the early days of Hezbollah. 
What did Russia do in response? What did the KGB do in response? Forgive the graphic description, but this is what it says here. The KGB last year secured the release of three kidnapped Soviet diplomats in Beirut by, forgive me, by castrating a relative of a radical Lebanese Shia Muslim leader who's in charge of the Hezbollah, a relative of his, sending him the severed organs and then shooting the relative in the head. That's what they did. The organs were sent to the Hezbollah leader with a warning that he would lose other relatives in a similar fashion if the three remaining Soviet diplomats were not immediately released. They were quickly freed. Now, the, the United States would, have, would not have done such a thing, the, the article goes on to point out, in which, in which case were more lives saved by all kinds of humanitarian surgical strikes against this target, against that target, which don't bother them anyhow because they don't care about their people being killed or blown up or what have you. And then hand-wringing about collateral damage and all this, all this kind of nonsense, or that kind of response. When dealing with barbarians, you have to be barbaric, that's all. It's very simple. And when we learn that lesson, Bezat Hashem, our lives will become much easier. Other questions? Yes? You, um, I, I think, well, not I think, you clearly were uh, suggesting uh, there's a Kalma Khomer between uh, the, the case in the Mishnah and uh, the, the case that we're dealing with now is, is even more extreme, obviously. Correct. So there's the the Kalvachome. But one thing you you <coughs> said did did surprise me. I, I hadn't uh, thought of before. You mentioned that <coughs> um kind of extraction was also potentially a problem. If it were possible. Potential? Uh, extraction of Extraction, hospital. yes. Um Ah of the, uh, the other statement in the Mishnah. Yes. Yes. And I and I just uh not in well, our situation. If we can lead across, I'm assuming your Kalvachome doesn't go that in, in that direction for this, or does it? I'm not sure I understand the question as you're putting it, but I will state simply that what the Mishnah speaks about, we do not break out Shavuim from captivity in order, what's the, the rationale there, not to, to cause these, these professional kidnappers, next time they kidnap a Jew, to hold him under much more severe and terrible circumstances. In other words, they'll chain him, they'll chain him to the wall, so uh, or what have you. The, uh, uh, in our situation, this is not relevant, just as the previous is not relevant, because we're discussing uh, an enemy with whom we are at war. It is a war against Amalek by their own admission because they wish to destroy us completely. They say so openly with, with pride, with glee. Many of us, many Jews chose not to believe them, but anyone who had their wi eyes wide open knew this was the truth all along and it certainly should be apparent to more people today. And even today I know it's not apparent to all, I'm afraid. I know this because I've heard such people, I've spoken to them. But all these considerations are not relevant in our situation today. No, absolutely not. We have to, as I said, we need to prosecute the war as if there are no hostages. If we become aware of a particular place where hostages are being held, as happened last night, and you're able to pull off such a, such a feat of arms and, and, and save them from, from their captivity, if it seems reasonable, uh, with a good chance of success, then yes, we should go, we should do that. But... Um, 
And even there, I think there's room for discussion. What price are you willing to pay? How, how, how many soldiers are you willing to risk for that? Uh, it's a very difficult call. That's the truth. We haven't got any clear halachi guideline about that. But, but that's not the same situation as today. This was talking about, as we said before, a, an industry, a business model. These were, these were people making, they're like the mafia, people who, you know, running a protection racket. And, and they just want money. And if you pay them, uh, they'll, they'll give you the person back and that's the end of it. And we have to, there we have to think about future Jewish captives and, and the Jewish community and the, uh, the impact of our decisions today in, on the future. Here we're talking about a war. When the issue at hand is war, nothing else is, is to be discussed. Just one thing and one thing only. Destroy the enemy. La shmid, la rog, la bed. Without any exception, down to the law. Yes. If I could interject from what the Rav said, in the, in the same way that we're dealing with now a situation in which the hostages are a tool of war being used against us. So in the same fashion, rescuing the hostages, if we have the opportunity to do so, as took place last night, is also a strategic move on our part, for many reasons. But one of the most important reasons is that it demonstrates both to us, our side, and to them, that they're not completely infallible in that, in that area, that we're able to penetrate their defenses, that we have intelligence on them. These are very, very important considerations. This is already getting into the weeds a little bit in terms of how we like, evaluate strategy and tactics, etc. But I can say unequivocally, just from, just from my experiences, that these are very, very important considerations. To demonstrate to the enemy that we know where they are, we can find them if we want to, and we have the capability of yeah. pulling off such a thing. Absolutely, it's a, it's a great blow to them. It's very, very important. It's, right, it's a military operation to the fullest degree. Right? In the same way that we like, identify a house where terrorists are in, we, and we're able to identify it, and then we're able to destroy it, the same way that we're able to identify where hostages are being held and pull off an operation like this and pull them out. It's a, right, it's a military operation. And Baruch Hashem was very successful and sent a very, very powerful message, both to us and to them. And it goes, it goes without saying that we would not have been able to pull off such an operation last night and then the special forces involved were are top-notch and uh, li literally uh, world-class, top, uh, first in the class when it comes to this kind of operation, the Imam. We could not possibly have done that without intelligence. The intelligence came from interrogating captured uh, and I call them enemy soldiers. Uh, you call them Hamasnikim, you call them terrorists, call them what you like. I don't accept the word terror. I don't know what terror is. I know what war is. When you're, when you're fighting a war against an implacable enemy, you do everything necessary to, to win. As the British and Americans did against the Germans and the Japanese. Exactly the same thing. It wasn't, it wasn't terrorism when they dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. It was warfare. And I'm so just one second. Without first prosecuting the war, and killing thousands upon thousands of their fighting men and capturing thousands of them and interrogating them, you wouldn't have known where they were being held. There's no question about that as well. So the warfare that preceded this rescue operation was, was, in, was a prerequisite. Yes? Um, I'm struggling how we should view, uh, the, uh, not to brush them all with the same paint, with the families of hostages who allowed themselves to be weaponized basically against us. Uh, I went to the other street to talk to one of the 
relatives who were demonstrating there, and I did it mainly with the purpose to improve my Hebrew, but I, I, but I was really astonished when I asked them what do you want the uh, government to do. She said, we, I want them to do everything which Hamas wants. There you go. And I understand if they would... Because she has no national... Um, she, she does not see herself or her family members, apparently, as belonging to the Jewish nation, to Klal Israel. She does not have the national interest uh, placed above everything else. But it's not even that, because if she would be demanding it from uh, Netanyahu behind the closed door, or demonstrating in front of the Red Cross, or right. on, to put more pressure on the uh, Hamas, I would understand that. But they are basically... I don't think they care at this point about their families. At this point, it looks like they were bought and paid for, but a couple and first of many, o many of them, unfortunately, were from the, big, from the outset. The, the uh, free the hostages at any price campaign was begun, so people in the know have reported, on the afternoon of Shmini Atzeret. On the afternoon of Shmini Atzeret, this, in, this individual, by his name Ronen Tsur, he was already busy cooking up this this uh, this uh, campaign, which for many of these people has it has something to do with hostages, yes, but it's it's first and foremost a political campaign to bring down Netanyahu. In other words, they just they just pivoted from judicial reform, so-called, as if that such a thing was about to happen, and they pivoted to hostages. It's all about bringing down Netanyahu and the Datim Lumiim and the Haredim, all these, all, it's all the people with Jewish identity. They cannot bear people like ourselves who have, who live by Jewish identity. They just can't bear it. Somehow, to them, this is the, the greatest threat to the, <laughs> to the Jewish people. It sounds insane, and it is. But the greatest threat to the Jewish people, as they perceive things, is people with Jewish identity. And uh, it's, it's a longer discussion, for, perhaps for another time. Yes? Um, from the Talmud that, we, that was mentioned before, um, it seemed that there was no definitive conclusion as to what the Tikkun HaOlam was that was being referred to in the Mishnah. Um, are we supposed to understand from there that both reasons are true? That both Duhqa, the Sibra, and the La Lilibu, Walaithu, Tefeh, both apply? Both are correct, yes. In other words, either, e either or, whatever, whichever, both are, are, are correct and, and relevant. That is, that is the case. And that's why Rambam, for example, did not... Uh, he, 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 he leans more to the second, which is actually being more mahmir, because talking about, if anything, you're talking about Safek and Fashot Lahmir. So Rambam's Lashon is, Shaloi yu hayoivim rodefim achrehem lishbotham. So that, that, se that seems for the Lashon of the Rambam, he leans more towards that. But the, the Tabud is not uh, explicit about that. Tov, I think perhaps we should stop here for this evening. And uh, Arvit, what's in Arvit? Thank you, Rabbi Bar Chaim. We would like to encourage our viewers to share these videos with friends and send in your responses. We would also like to suggest the following opportunity to our viewers. If you identify with Rabbi Bar Chaim's message and would like to sponsor or dedicate a video interview with the rabbi in honor or memory of a loved one, 
If you would like to obtain Birkon Nusach Eretz Yisrael or invite the rabbi for a speaking engagement, please email us at office at machonchilo.org.